Hey everybody, we have some big news. Thanks to our sponsors, Good Nurse Bad Nurse is teaming up with several other popular podcasts to bring you the very first Nurses PodCon. It's going to be a one-day event on Saturday, November the 20th in Nashville, Tennessee from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. We're going to have live podcasts going on all day long and we'll have several educational sessions featuring Mike with Simple Nursing and many other nurse educators that will count for continuing education credits, including IV tips and tricks, time management hacks, test-taking strategies, NCLEX prep, and a lot more. This is going to be a hybrid in-person and online event, so you can get an online ticket and enjoy the day virtually, or there is a limited number of tickets for you to come in person, and of course, we'd love to see you. We'd like to thank the following sponsors for helping to make this event possible. Trusted Health, you guys know, they're my favorite company for travel nurses. Doggles is the company that brought fashion to safety goggles. Echo Devices, their amazing audio enhancing technology for stethoscopes. Samuel Merritt University, they've been training superior nurses and healthcare professionals for over 100 years. And CBD Stat, their CBD oil is the purest out there. It's your new secret weapon. So go to goodnursebadnurse.com and get your tickets today for the Nurses PodCon. I'm so excited about it. You guys know how much I love nursing schools. Well, we have another one that wants us to tell you about their MSN and DNP family nurse practitioner programs. Samuel Merritt University has been educating nurses for over 100 years. And right now, they are offering tons of scholarship opportunities starting at $10,000 for both of these programs. You know, I'm in the midst of getting my MSN. And let me tell you, I wish I would have known about these scholarships when I first enrolled. Visit them at smumsn.com and show them how much you appreciate them for sponsoring our podcast. That's smumsn.com. Hey everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to our little podcast that mixes a little medical true crime and news stories, a little chit chat about healthcare, all that stuff. So if that's what you're looking for, then stick around. If not, you might want to go somewhere else before you listen to it and then get so irritated that I'm not talking enough about true crime and talking too much about because I love nursing. So some, I have gotten some reviews. It's like, this is not enough true crime. And I'm like, hmm. Well, it's not exactly what it's not really just a true crime podcast. So we mix it all in. So just just to let you know, kind of warn you ahead of time. But before we get started, I would like to ask you to take a moment of your time and give us a five star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you hear, you know, if not, you can just go away quietly. It's okay. We don't, you know, we don't want to waste any more of your time. (laughs) Ah. And if you're needing some entertainment at an event that you're planning, we're starting to do live podcast events now. We just did our second one at the Georgia Association Nursing uh, of Nursing Students uh, conference. It was virtual, and I think it went really well. So if you're interested in having Good Nurse, Bad Nurse come to your event and do a live podcast, you can go to goodnursebadnurse.com and click on the speaking section for more information. So now I can get on with introducing my guest host for this week. We have another nursing podcaster, which I love, the host of Up My Nursing Game podcast, Annie Fulton. Hi, Annie. Welcome to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Hi, Tina. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited. I am too. I always love having new nursing podcasters on. Your your podcast has been around, what, a little over a year, I think? Yeah, a little over a year. I host the educational podcast, Up My Nursing Game, which uses expert interviews to 
to address common nursing questions and pitfalls. So I like to think of the podcast as like a a safe, non-intimidating environment for nurses to ask questions from members of the healthcare team that they've always had. So like, for example, in an early episode, I sat down with a urologist and chatted with him about difficult Foley insertion. It's been like a really cool opportunity for me. You know, I'm six years into my career. I still got questions. I figure if I have questions, other people do too. So why don't I share what I learn with others along the way? I love it. I love it so much. I, I love your humility. And I've been a nurse for six years also. And I, every time I, oh. yes, every time I turn around, I have a question. So I love this sort of thing. It just, it, it gives you opportunities. That conversational type thing gives you opportunities. You know, if you hear someone else asking a question, you just think, oh, I didn't know that either. And now I don't feel so bad for not knowing it. Exactly. And we don't really have time, right, to ask these questions mm-hmm. when we're working. You know, we don't, we don't even have like a minute to sit down yeah. and like, like really ask something. And, and I find that, you know, this has been like the podcasting medium has been so effective for this kind of conversation. And in fact, I have partnered with the ANCC, the uh, Nurse Credentialing Center, and so that nurses who listen can claim one hour of continuing education for free for listening. Whoa, that is awesome. I love that. Yeah, get continuing education while you commute to work which is how I often listen to podcasts. That's interesting because the ANCC actually sponsors our, our podcast. We run a little commercial um, in the middle of it. And so that worked out nicely. I love that they're offering those. That's great. Yes, they're awesome. They do a good job. Like before I could, you know, have be able to give, you know, a continuing education credit, they really made like vetted my show and made sure I was, you know, coming up with good content. So I have a lot of good stuff to say about the ANCC. I love it. Well, I guess we can get started with this, this bad nurse story. This is a disturbing story, no doubt. You know, I really hate these stories, because it really put it gives us some bad media for sure. And it does not, you, nursing, nurses are the most trusted profession. You hear that every, you know, year in and year out. It's the most trusted profession. Patients put a lot of trust in our hands, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And this is so disturbing. People may wonder, well, why do you want to talk about it? Why do you want to bring this to light? Why do you want people to know that this sort of thing happens? Well, we all need to be aware that unfortunately, there are going to be a few bad apples that slip through into healthcare and that are, for whatever reason, decide that this is something that they want to do. We need to be advocating for our patients and, and watching for everybody's patients, not just our own. If you see something, obviously step up and say something. If you're, if you have a weird, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, if you got a weird feeling in your gut, that's why we do these stories. And so with that being said, I'll, we'll just go ahead and get right into this very disturbing story. So this nurse's name is William George Davis. So on February the 8th in 2018, investigators were called to a meeting at a prominent heart hospital in Tyler, Texas. And in this meeting, they were given information involving patients and a series of disturbing incidents. The hospital staff and their counsel had a list of seven patients who were involved in these incidents, which took place between June 2017 and January 2018. So five of the patients suffered, quote, significant injury, and two of them died. 
um, the patients all suffered stroke-like symptoms. So they were all similar events. The patients were all recovering from cardiac surgery and seemed to be recovering well when this sudden event happened. All of the incidents were unexpected, which is what, what prompted the investigation by the hospital staff. They discovered that they all occurred on the night shift. So they started looking at employees who were working when these events took place, and they saw one person's name was on the staffing list for all of the incidents. William George Davis is a registered nurse and was working on the cardiovascular intensive care unit, and that is where I have worked for the past year and a half. Yeah, it really hit home with me. I, 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 these are the patients that I've taken care of for the past year and a half, and uh, I just got recently in the past six months got heart trained and it's such an honor. They, they give you this beautiful pen, you know, like it's an actual, you know, heart and it's a badge of honor. And I consider it such a privilege to be able to take the class, to have been chosen to take the class and be able to take care of these patients. And it mortifies me to think that uh, when I think of how, how nervous I get, I'll, you know, the nerves that I get when I'm waiting for that patient to come out of the operating room and how I just want everything to go well. And when things go wrong, you know, that adrenaline gets pumping and you just want to, you know, you just want everything to go well. It's so hard for me to imagine somebody just deliberately doing something, you know, to injure these very vulnerable people. It's so, so, so tragic. Do you also work night shift? No, I, I do not work night shift. I have in the past. I, I used to work on progressive care unit at this hospital where I worked and I worked some night shifts there. I worked about like nine months or so when I was new and then went to days. Then I became a team leader. A team leader position opened up at night. So I went to nights as a team leader for, again, like six months or so and then came to days. Just the fact that this this nurse, William George Davis, that he worked in the CBICU, which, you know, I, I've never worked in the CBICU, but it's considered like the CBICU is where like the cream of the crop nurses go. Like it's super high stakes there. Like you're dealing with some really unstable patients. And on top of all that stress, he's also working on night shift too. And like, believe it or not, I've gone six years and or actually seven maybe now in my nursing career and I've never worked a night shift. But that, I mean, that's stressful too. Like, you know, all the disruptions to your circadian rhythms, like, I don't know. I have so much respect for night shift nurses, but yeah, it sounds like like a lot of stress going on in, in this nurse's life to begin with, just off the bat. Yeah, and let the record show, by the way, that Annie is the one that said that about CBICU nurses. Please do not come at me. <laughs> I <have not laughs> right? I feel like the internet loves to hate on CBICU they do. nurses. They do. I, I actually find it kind of funny. I. I haven't been a CVICU nurse that long, so I still, I feel very new and green and like, you know, just like, I don't know anything. I'm, I'm learning, like I said, I, I'm learning all the time. So yeah, when I, when I realized that people are like that, I'm like, oh my goodness, they, they hate us. They absolutely hate us. Or they think that we're so arrogant and we're so full of ourselves. And that's actually the opposite of how, what I have found CVICU nurses. The ones that I've worked with are very actually humble and, and just 
always willing to, you know, ask questions and trying to learn. They love to learn and they love to teach. And that's probably where it comes from. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There's a little mm -hmm. bit of that, you know, trying yeah, to teach. It, it's, yeah. it's just, it's about teaching. It's about educating. And, and so it, it's, it could probably maybe uh, depending on how you do it, it maybe comes across arrogant and like you're being condescending. And it, that's where I, you know, all depends on the delivery. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you know, I, I've actually never worked in an ICU, but when I, when I talk to ICU nurses about their, their haughtiness or like that, they're so particular, they're like, look, I'm just trying to keep people alive. And that can be a tall order. I think in the ICU sometimes. I think that it's just, I also work at, at a teaching hospital. And, and so you kind of get it into your head that that's what you're supposed to do all the time. And, and I always want, I want to be taught. I want people to teach me. If you know something, if you, if you see me doing something that is not evidence-based practice, I want you to correct me. I want to be corrected. I want you to sh tell me your opinion about something or tell me your evidence of that. Look, this study shows that you're not supposed to do that anymore or whatever. I, we should all be having this conversations and we shouldn't be afraid to have those conversations and we shouldn't be offended when someone tries to respectfully and professionally correct us, not in a, in a demeaning way or th that's what I, I think that's the hard yeah. part I think is like accepting mm -hmm new knowledge. Yeah. I think like there's, there's a right time also to deliver the knowledge, oh, sure. like maybe not, not in like a super high stakes environment, like not during a code, obviously, but like when everything is settled down, just like sit down and have like an honest conversation. Yes. Not someone. in front of patients, not in front of family members, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. In a more like private environment, maybe without like your superiors over you. Yeah, totally. Definitely not in front of a patient. Like that's, yeah, that's not professional. So not, you know, of course I got, got off on a Tina tangent as I do sometimes. I warned you guys <laughs> at the beginning, but that just made me think of that. I thought, oh no, they're, I'm going to get the emails from people like, how dare you? But <laughs> so, um. but to kind of get back on, onto this story, because what happened is the investigators obtained hospital security footage that were pertaining to those seven incidences um, in particular. And they saw video footage of William Davis entering a patient's room. And about a minute later, he exits the patient's room. And there's footage of the events involving all seven of them. And all set of seven of them show that he went into the patient's room before the incidents. So in one particular event, a nurse who was involved in one of those particular incidents said that the hospital staff noticed that the, his arterial line waveform changed significantly. And so I know that whenever you're dealing with, for, for people who aren't familiar with arterial lines, we call them art lines. If the, so you, you have a particular waveform, just like you have a plus for your O2 saturation and your O2 saturation could say 70 but it means nothing if your if your waveform is all wonky, you know, you want that nice, you know, even that's exactly the way it is with an art line. There's a particular waveform. And so if the if the line is getting flushed or because you have a saline that's supposed to be running through running into the line or having it's actually pushing pressure because you have it hooked up to a pressure bag. And so 
that pressure is keeping the arc the artery from, from, you know, keeping blood from flowing into the line. So you can draw blood back from it, or you can flush it if you need to, but it's, it's literally able to read the blood pressure. And it's a very accurate way of, if it's incorrectly, it's a very accurate way of, you know, knowing someone's blood pressure. Well, yeah, like real time blood pressure. Exactly. All the time, constantly, you can tell. And, and there are certain things, you know, you're pushing meds through their through a line and you've got an art line. You can immediately see the effects of the medications. It's pretty, pretty cool. If you've ever, if you ever have a patient with an art line that's getting reglin, <laughs> you watch, uh-huh. watch the art line and telling you, your, your blood pressure is going to go, it's going to tank real fast. Why, oh, that's cool. That's why that's, you want to push it over. That's why it says to push it over like four minutes or, you know, something like that. Because it's it, it will tank the, the person's blood pressure. That's really cool. Like, I don't know about you, Tina, but sometimes I'll take a patient's blood pressure and then I'll see the numbers. I'm like, hmm, I don't like that number. I'm going to try it again. And then maybe you switch to another arm or you just like readjust the cuff. And then you get a totally different number. And it's like, wait, this can't be very scientific, right? Like if I'm, I'm just like, I don't know, making little minor adjustments to the, um, to the blood pressure cuff. But I feel like with an art line, you're getting like true numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it's, if it's incorrectly and you have the patient positioned correctly, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, variables that have to be in place, just like with a blood pressure cuff. And sometimes your cuff pressure is more accurate than the art line. If it's, you know, if there's a problem oh, with really? it, well, if there's a, if there's a problem, you know, sometimes just like with an IV, you know, the catheter may not be in the right place. It, it's oh, yeah, there's, there can be different okay. problems, but if you're out on the, like at the nurse's station and you're looking at the monitor and you're watching your patient's blood pressure and then all of a sudden the waveform flattens and you're just like, Whoa, what's going on? It'll look like it, like, it'll look like their blood pressure went way up and you'll just be like what's going on? Well, they're pro- the, there's probably a nurse and they're flushing the line to try to get it because you'll do that sometimes and you don't want to over flush it or anything. But sometimes you need to flush it to to kind of get it to where it's working correctly. If it changes significantly, that's probably means that it's being manipulated. That's right? exactly it's not right. Necessarily, I, the patient. It's, yeah, it's not. I, I would I would almost 100 percent say that that it was the line was being flushed because that's typically what it is. Or, or it's been disconnected. If it'll get dis, if it gets, it does all sorts of things. You know, getting disconnected, flushing the line, those those sorts of things. So, she did capture an image of the waveform. Uh, was able to capture that at, in that moment, and she says that she spoke to William Davis about the incident and that he told her information that was inconsistent with what she saw on the security footage. So she's thinking, well wait a minute, you know, I, I saw you go in and then you were in there a minute and then I saw you go out. And so apparently that wasn't quite lining up with what he was saying. In the footage, you can see him enter the room. It looks like the lights didn't come on. Then about a minute later, you see him exit. And then approximately three minutes after he left the room, the patient suffered a profound neurological emergency. And this patient was completely neurologically intact up to this point. 
We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. You guys, a career in nursing is more than just a job. It's a lifelong journey of learning and growing. And professional development is key for any nurse hoping to advance their career. So how about you? Are you ready to take your career to the next level? If so, now is the time for you to get your certification in nursing. Earning your certification is a major professional milestone. It's a seal of approval recognized by professional peers, hiring managers, and patients. It signifies your commitment to excellence, your level of competence, and can make you more marketable in a competitive field, offering 18 different certifications, including 12 specialty certifications. Whether you're looking to earn your first certification, ready to renew, or exploring new certifications, they are there to make the entire process as easy, affordable, flexible, and painless as possible. Whatever your practice level or desired specialty, they can help you prepare your exam with a range of affordable tools and resources designed to set you up for success. And their commitment to you goes well beyond the exam. They provide all the ongoing support, advocacy, guidance, and resources that you need throughout your nursing career. This is your career, and you deserve the best. At ANCC, they're going to be there to help you every step of the way. So visit pages.nursingworld.org forward slash GNBN to learn more. That's pages.nursingworld.org forward slash GNBN. And we'll put that link on our website. If you want to just go to Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, you can click on it from there. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream I put on every day after work. I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet. And I have plantar fasciitis. So now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in their product, just go to goodnursebadnurse.com and click on the CBD stat link to get your 40% off. He initially told the nurse questioning him that he had gone into the room to reset a pump that was alarming. Very common thing that we do, right? Very common. It doesn't yes. matter if it's your patient. If you hear a pump alarming, you you know you can go in there and be like, "Hey, what's going on?" And see, is are the fluids about empty? Especially in an ICU where they could have a presser running, they could have things that are really keeping them alive. So or sedated, and you you don't want things happen. What you know if they're if their nurse if that patient's nurse is in another room dealing with something critical, and then they it, they miss. The, the opportunity to change, you know, the bag of, say, leave a fed or, or whatever. And, and so you walk in there to be like, what's going on? Oh, the propofol is almost out, you know, oh, <laughs> and, you know no. then you'll what? run and grab another bottle of propofol, bring it back in. And, and usually if I do something like that, I will leave the room. If I, if I see the nurse anywhere, I'll be like, Hey, your propofol is almost out. I'm going to run and grab some more that way. 
I'm not messing with their patient without them knowing that what I'm doing. Now, if I don't see them, I'll just go ahead and do it. And they are, I know that they would appreciate me doing that. They're not going to want me to let the patient sit there and, you know, there are some people oh, that are absolutely, you know, like it take it. What did they say? What's the thing? Like it takes a village. <laughs> yes, it certainly does. It certainly doesn't. There are some nurses that are really particular about their, their patients. They don't want anyone else messing with them. But even those nurses have to kind of understand that if, if for whatever reason, all the stars align the wrong way and you happen to be away from the, your patient, when something like that happens, you have to be able to rely on your, your coworkers to step in and help you out and help that patient out. So that it's not at all unusual that a, a nurse would have walked into a patient's room because the pump was alarming. He said that the pump showed an upstream occlusion. Okay, one of the most frustrating things, if you if it says occlusion, and then you're sitting there looking at the line, and you're like, there is no occlusion. So sometimes it says air in the line, and you, you're like, there is no air. And so, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it can <laughs> be frustrating. One frustration, yeah. Yes, for sure. Well, he didn't say anything about touching the arterial line, nothing. And so the nurse could tell that the art line was tampered with because of the waveform she knew so the nurse also noted that Davis didn't offer to tell the nurse that was that actually had the patient that he had just been in the room moments before the emergency. Yeah, so there was another RN who said they were close to the room where this incident took place and never heard a pump alarming. Was, and I'm assuming this is sort of probably a manager type person who's reviewing what happened after this event. And so she's putting all this together and going, okay, so I clearly on the video, watch him walk in there one minute later, walk out. And then three minutes later, everybody rushed to the room and he, you can see him down the hall at another nurse's station. This is a large unit. And he does not offer when they, when that incident happened, he does not offer to, to jump up and go help. He sits there for a while. Then he does go ahead, ahead and walk on down there and, but he never, he doesn't actually go in the room. Now, if you are on, the, on a unit like that and say you hear a pump alarm, alarming, for whatever reason, you go into a patient's room and then you leave. And then just a couple of minutes later, there is a major event and there's everybody under the sun in that room trying to figure out what's going on. Then you go right in that yeah. room. Any nurse would do that. Any nurse that is yeah. a good nurse. No would walking. Walk. You're, you're running. You're going right in there and you're going to say, Hey, I was just in here two minutes ago. The pump was alarming and I, I hit and I added some volume to it or I did whatever back, you know, back primed it. And this patient was fine. They're, I don't know what is going on because you want them to know the last known normal, right? I mean, you would want, this is important information. And I guarantee you that ICU nurse knew that. And yet he didn't offer to run down there. So. so this is looking really bad, right? Like what his recount of, you know, what happened doesn't match the video. And then there's a code and he doesn't jump up to go in. Like, I don't even care if you were the last one in the room, if there's a code on your unit, like you, you get up and you go there. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. 
it's all hands on deck. And if nothing all else, hands on deck. yes, ma'am. And, and if nothing else, you're going to look at what I tend to do. I, I feel like in, during code situations or rapid responses, a lot of people come to help with that situation. And then all of those people are not taking care of their patients, including the nurse who is, it's, you know, in the middle of, you know, their patient coding. So I usually will look at that nurse that it's their patient and I'll say, do you need me to do anything for your other patients? You know, do yes. you, do you have meds that yes. are due? Do you need me to just check on them a neuro check or whatever? What's, you know, and you know, 99 times out of a hundred, they're going to go, please. Yes. You know, because you just feel like, I know I'm going to be in here forever. Please just at least go in there and make sure they're okay. See if they need anything. So there's, you, you definitely, you, you are going to be there for your coworker during this, the situation. You're going to go down there and just see, can I do anything to help? Can I be a runner or whatever? There's all kinds of funny memes about, you know, like the person who doesn't know what to do during a code. So they're like standing there holding the blood, the blood sugar, you know, <laughs> glucometer. I can get a blood hey, sugar. blood sugar is a good idea. <laughs> hey, it sure is. Sometimes people forget that. And so, hey, just be the person that grabs the, always glad. If you don't know what to do in a code, go grab the glucometer first. Little pro tip. <laughs> no, the- don't. I mean, not first. I mean, you know, early on, not first. Well, not, not if you're the one responding, of course, no. but if there's a code and you walk up to the room or you run up to the room and there's all kinds of stuff going on, just grab the glucometer. And if you're, and, and now I'm not saying if you, if you're in a situation where you see a patient that is coding, like the patient's, you know, heart stops or they start, you know, going to respiratory arrest or whatever, you, you, if you're calling the code, obviously you're going to start compressions or you're going to do what you need to do first. But if you don't know what, if you don't know what to do to uh, just assist in a code, like if you're kind of running up to a situation and and you don't know what to do to help, always grab a glucometer. You can definitely, usually people forget to do that. So you can be that person (laughs) or you can grab flushes. It's always good to be the person because that's stuff that they need. They always need that. I used to work at a hospital where you, you would have to access the Pixis to get flushes. And it killed me. But yeah, because you always need flushes and you don't always have time to, you know, scan your finger and enter your code and do all these things. Oh, but yes, you always need flush. flushes. Man, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for a flush. So police did actually, now, let's see, where was I? When the nurse who was missing. So I want to know, like, what did they find out about these patients? Okay, so... When the nurse who was investigating the incident realized that Davis had relayed inaccurate information, she really started getting concerned about this because she's just thinking, what would be the purpose of him not telling the truth about this? So Davis actually contacted that nurse several days after the incident and admitted that he had flushed the arterial line several times. So... It's almost like he answered one way in the, initially and then maybe thought about it and realized, okay, I probably should say, because they have that waveform, they know I was in there, so I, I need to admit that I flushed the art line because he came back and said, um, yeah, I did flush the art line several times. Unfortunately, the patient in this incident suffered permanent and debilitating injuries as a result of the event. It's really, really sad. He was otherwise, you know, you said neurologically intact before this? Absolutely. 
Police arrested Davis in 2018 and charged him with the murder of Christopher Green, Greenaway. Greenaway was a decorated veteran and only 47 years old when this happened. In photographs, you can see that he was a very young and vibrant looking person. 47 is super young. Like, if I get mm-hmm. a 47 year old mm-hmm. patient, I'm like, yeah, super young. And in, yeah. in like hospital terms, that seems mm-hmm. very young. Well, it is very young and it's younger than I am. I'm 48. So, <laughs> yeah, so yes. it, it hits home real fast when, as you start, as you start yeah. aging and your patients are getting younger than you, you, it hits home, you know, it, you're just how, how fragile life is. So far, several hospital employees, employees have testified, including a radiologist who first noted an air embolism in one of the patient's yeah, and told the hospital staff conducting the investigation to ask the nurse caring for the patient because there is a significant amount of air in the brain where there should be none. So a nurse practitioner also testified that Mr. Greenaway was doing great the last time she saw him. She said she saw him on Friday and told him that he did great. She was real proud of him. I, I have had this conversation so many times with my my patients, like once they, once I get them extubated and, you know, it, when you, for, when you start taking care of open hearts, you, it's a different type of patient because they come to you intubated and you want to get them extubated as safely and but quickly as possible, get them off that ventilator. And you want to try to get that done within six hours. And so you get to see this huge turnaround because they, when they come to you, obviously they are sedated and they just this huge gaping wound on their on their chest. Yeah, their well, maybe chest, not gaping, yeah. but there's just like everything. Well, they've got chest tubes and everything. And then like the next day, they look totally different. They're talking to you, they're eating. It's just, it's so satisfying. And it's so... Like oftentimes they're walking too. Yes. Right? Oh, they absolutely, a lot of times are. And it's such a great feeling to when you're working. That's one nice thing about working on CBSU is you do get to see these huge turnarounds within a day or two of, for people. Because you know you're going to send them off to leave, mm-hmm. lead a good life yes, after this. You fix and you them. don't often feel like that mm-hmm. working in other areas of the hospital. That is very true. She said, uh, the nurse practitioner that was, that was rounding on him said that he wanted a steak dinner. She told him, mm, I know. that's always a good sign. Mm-hmm. She told him she would see him on Monday. And of course she never expected what was about to happen over the weekend. So his trial began recently and is currently underway right now. I mean, it's literally going on at this moment. This is, it's October in 2021, as we're recording this. And the last time court was in session, it was day nine of the trial and a night shift nurse was giving testimony as to what happened to a patient that he was caring for one night. Her name was Pamela Henderson. And according to this nurse, he went into Miss Henderson's room to check on her because her blood pressure suddenly spiked on the monitor. And when he walked into, into the room, Will Davis was standing at the foot of the bed on the same side where the arterial line is. And he said he, he, he did not see a syringe. He didn't see David manipulating the line. I think I'm pretty sure my computer is changing the spelling of this. Yeah. Like, yeah. (laughs) Auto-correcting to David. Yeah. So, but he did ask Will Davis if that blood pressure on the monitor was accurate. And he said, Davis replied that he thought that it was. And so Miss Anderson suffered a severe neurological event that caused significant brain damage. It's 
so incredibly sad. She was completely alert and oriented and doing fine. And had it's, this is just so, you know, she was up and talking and this so unexpected. The nurse said that he, well, the day shift nurse actually talked to her husband and said, and, and, and encouraged him to go home and get some rest. And, I know it, it, it's, I'm, I cannot, I cannot imagine how that nurse must've felt because I have had that conversation with patients, family members before, especially in a, with a surgery, because, you know, they're so worried about them and they're, they're just like, you know, sh- should I stay, you know, should I stay here? And I usually will tell them, no, you should go home and get some rest. You're going to need to have your rest, be able to take care of them when they get home. And they usually will listen and they'll, they'll be like, yeah, I'm going to go home and then I'll come back in the morning. We're gonna, and, I, and I always, in, you know, just tell them, we're going to take great care of your loved one. We have great nurses here. And it's true. I love the people that I work with. I, I, would put, I would put my life and my family's life in their hands any day of the week. And so to find out that there's something like this, a suspicion. Of, and of course, this trial is still going on. He is innocent until proven guilty. You know, we've gone through all of these facts. This is, these are facts factual details that have come out in the trial. And, you know, so we're telling you exactly what his co-workers has said has gone on and what the investigators have found during their investigation. I'm so curious to find out, like, what is his motive in all of this? And like, right, you said, like, he is innocent until proven guilty. But like, was there any clue leading up to this that, I don't know, that he was mentally unwell or like, is there some commonality in, you know, the patients that were, you know, suffered these neurological events or was it just maybe like just totally random? I can tell you that after doing 150 of these shows, I have done quite a few quote angel of death stories where it's, you know, the nurse who is deliberately doing something to the patient. A lot of times what I feel like a central theme is for these stories is that the nurse likes the drama. They like the adrenaline rush of a, some kind of a, an emergent event, something going on. They, so there's something about feeling, you know, powerful that they have that sort of control over another human being. And, and they love being involved and get being kind of in the middle of all the activity, you know, it's that adrenaline rush, but yep, I could see that. Like, You know, I was recently caring for a patient with um, anorexia and I was reminded about, you know, why do patients starve themselves? Because it, you know, goes against like very, like the, the, the essence of human nature, which is to survive. But I was reminded that has to do with control, that humans have this profound need for control. And I could totally see, um, I mean, in some like twisted way where this, you know, this nurse, William Davis, feels like he's in, you know, utmost control of people's lives. And it all he had to do was flush air from a syringe into a patient's art line. And that's all it takes to either, you know, kill the patient or to cause like permanent significant damage. Right. It's just so disheartening and and discouraging to think that you just don't know who, who these people are, where they are, and the fact that they could end up, you know, we've done doctor stories too. We've done respiratory therapists. It's not just nurses that, that do stuff like this. There are people 
there are bad people in this world, unfortunately, that literally just don't care about human beings. And I don't understand why, but for some reason they end up in healthcare, you know, and you can't weed them all out. You just have to kind of know warning signs, I guess. It's sort of, it's, the sad thing is you're not going to know until, because it's not like you're going to see anything until something's happened. You know, you see a death and then another one and you start to see it. You're, you're not going to recognize anything until you see a pattern. I mean, for me, if you have a patient that's completely alert and oriented and everything is going fine and all of a sudden there's a, this major event unexpected, that should be looked into. And I'm not saying we should be looking every single time at the nurse or all the people around them. But I'm just saying like, there, you have to have an answer as to what happened there. You can't just be like, well, they were sick, I guess, you know, because we're vulnerable, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it says that there are five patients in from this unit in the span of June 2017 to January of 2018. So that's like six months. There are five patients who suffered significant injury. That's a lot. It is. And, and to like, have the I, I get same that, nurse, yeah, taking yeah. care of all of them, yeah. Yeah, and in some ways, I'm kind of wondering, like, how did it get to be five? Like, how, why wasn't it figured out a little sooner? Maybe there's some, like, denial, or, you know, you don't want to, like, rat out on your own, like, coworker. I don't know. When you're working on a unit like this, there are lots of things that happen, and there, you do see death a lot. I mean, really these patients are very volatile and they're they're you just you don't know what could possibly happen what could go wrong usually there is some indication you know that they're unstable but sometimes things happen and you're just you know just like what just happened oh, that everything should have been fine i don't know i that that sort of thing does happen and they have to really see a pattern you would have to all of a sudden okay you know we've had in the past six months, five, seven people have these sudden neurological events that were all kind of similar. And it wasn't, I don't think it was until the radiologist saw the air, they deliberately did, because how are they going to see air? They would have to do a CT of the brain. So who's going to do a CT of a dead person? They're not usually going to do that. They had to, it, it, it had to take a few before they started going, you know, it hit someone like, hey, let's check the brain and see what's going on there. Yeah, that's a good point. I think also, you know, as a, as a non-ICU nurse, I don't see death with that much frequency. So yeah, if there were five deaths on, you know, the floor that I'm working on, that would be very notable. But if you're if you're on like a CVICU, then yeah, maybe it's not. I mean, I don't know how often you see death there, but it's with far more frequency than you're seeing on the floor. Well, I can tell you that I I moved to CVICU right at the very beginning of the pandemic, and so it's oh, kind of hard for me to say what is normal. <laughs> really, it is so hard. Yeah, I, yeah, I, exactly. Now, now we do. We, it's not a COVID unit. We have two rooms that can be can have COVID patients if they're ECMO. Other than that, we don't, it's not a COVID floor. So it's not like they're all COVID patients and you're seeing so but there's still a lot of death because 
people get COVID and then later they come back with a lot of cardiovascular issues, you know, clotting problems. And so the amount of patients that have died this past year and and a half, I don't know if it's normal or not. I just know that it just got to the point that it every day there's always, it just seemed like there's always somebody on the floor at some point, you know, that's dying. And it, it's not unusual then, you know, to see uh, one person on the monitor go asystole and, and you're just like, is anybody, you know, and they're just like, oh no, someone says dying. And you're, it, it, there used to be, you know, there was a time when someone was dying and everybody would be like, oh no. And you, you kind of like hover around that nurse and you kind of try to be supportive and yeah, you know, yeah. you and, have a collective moment. Yeah, yeah. You try to help them get through that. It's really, you know, can just be so emotionally taxing and, and there's a lot sometimes involved because you're trying to do all sorts of things, you know, to either prevent the death or ha- help them to have a, a good death, you know, where, where they're, not suffering. Um, so you're trying to get them what they need. Um, support. That's actually one of my like favorite parts of nursing is providing a patient and their family with a good death. Like that is like, like that's your last moment, you know, on earth you're, you know, so make it as, as good as you can. And like, what, how meaningful, like, this is so amazing that like we can provide that as nurses. And I, like, I take a lot of like responsibility and providing that. And that is the, you know, what you just said is the vast majority of nurses and healthcare professionals that I have come in contact with and I've worked with over the past six years. And that's why I love nursing and love healthcare because of the, you know, people's hearts generally, that's how they are when, and that's, that's what you hear people say about taking care of people. And so to come across a story like this, it's just, it stabs me right in the heart. I just can't, I hate it so much. It just puts this dark cloud over it. And, and, you know, but what do you, you know, there's nothing you can do now. If he is convicted, the death penalty, they are going, they are seeking the death penalty for this. I don't know how it is in the state of Texas or how this is going to go, whether the jury will decide or the judge, but if he's convicted. Absolutely. I could totally understand him getting the death penalty. He killed two patients. Was that right? And, and then caused permanent damage in three others. But yeah, I think, yeah, I could totally understand death penalty for Davis. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I'll keep an eye on this. I'm interested to see like what they learn about Davis along the way. Like what, what's his background? Was there some like stressor event in his life? Like, I don't know what any, did he display any kind of antisocial behavior? Like we just don't know much about him right now. Yeah. Some of the testimony from his coworkers said that he is a very competent nurse that you would not at all question. You would, you would think he's one of the people that would take excellent care of their patients and that, you would not, if you walk in a room and he's in there, you would just assume, oh, he had a reason for coming in here. He's just helping with the patient. And you wouldn't even second guess it, wouldn't even question it whatsoever. That's horrifying. Absolutely horrifying to me. I believe he's married, has a child. Oh, mm-hmm. you're and, a mom, Tina. Mm-hmm. I am. Yeah, I am too. And that just um, hits me in the mom spot. <laughs> it's, it's so hard to imagine somebody... I don't know, doing anything that could put you in a position 
that you're, you know, you're risking your freedom and risking your life and your child's not going to have a, a father if, oh. if he's convicted of well, this. Well, I'm really, I'm really curious to see what, what comes out of this case. I usually try to stay real neutral, especially on ones that are not, that we don't have the outcome yet. I definitely, you know, I like to just kind of put the information out there that's already out there in the media and, um, and then kind of see what happens. And it's, it's good. We'll have a resolution to this in the next week or two, unless there's a hung jury, which is always a possibility. But I can understand where, you know, it hits close to home for, you know, a lot of reasons you were saying, like he's, his victims are a similar age. He works in the same kind of unit that you work in that it's hard to remain neutral about the story. We'll take a moment to hear a word from our sponsor. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes this stethoscope so amazing uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get 10% off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get 10% off your order. Well, I guess we can get started. I'm really excited about this good nurse story. I have been on a kick lately <laughs> about trying to do something to affect change in the staffing situation in our hospitals and kind of that my new thing is I think is going to be to try to focus on this and get people to basically hound your, your representatives, your senators, your Congress people, you have the people who your lawmakers at the state and federal level to do something to put in to affect safe nurse to patient ratios. And I put out something on social media recently where I basically told a personal story and I would encourage everybody listening to do that, to approach your Congress person, your state and federal representatives and ask them about this because it needs to be uh, in the forefront because I believe with all my heart that 
one of the main reasons that we are having a shortage of nurses willing to work at the bedside is because of not having safe nurse to patient ratios. So that's kind of where we're going with the story today. I was going to, you know, mention that I I live and work in California and that (laughs) you're the only state. (laughs) mm -hmm, Yes. And I'll tell you that I have met so many nurses from all around the country who have moved. They have picked up their life and moved to California because the working conditions as a nurse are so much better in California. And I can only imagine like what kind of drain this is on, you know, the states that these nurses are leaving. It's so much better to, I mean, of course, there's some craziness always in your shift, even if you have like, you know, a decent ratio, but they are just willing to move their whole lives to, to work in California. Are you experiencing right now, are you hearing right now in California that there are nursing shortages there like they are in the rest of the country? Oh, yeah. I mean, the hospital I'm at now, they're offering like huge incentive bonuses for for nurses to work overtime. And that's on top of hiring travel nurses. And we just cannot get enough nurses to work at the bedside. And this has been like for six months that this has been going on. So that is with having safe nurse to patient ratios that are required. So, I mean, that kind of surprises me because I kind of was hoping that that would be, that that would help, you know, if you had safe staffing ratios. And I know that there's, the pay is better there. And yet still, you're having a problem having people remaining at the bedside. That's kind of disturbing. Right. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I get what you're saying. I think that I mean, if you look bigger picture, what's going on in the country, you know, some hospitals can't hire enough nurses, so they have to hire travel nurses. And so they offer, you know, huge incentives for travel nurses to come to their hospitals. And then nurses, then sorry, so then hospitals then have a hard time incentivizing nurses to stay working, you know, full time and that, you know, wherever they have been working. So that's why like the hospital I'm at now is just trying to give nurses who work there currently all the reason to stay and not to leave to find like lucrative um, travel contracts. Well, I still believe that, and I don't know what the data shows, whether it's worse in California or maybe not as bad in California as it is other places. I have no idea. It seems like the travel opportunities aren't as good there as they are in some other places, like it seems like the places where the, there are more staffing issues, like in North Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama, the pay is not as good. And some of those places, like it's literally on the lower end of the, the scale, the lower end of the range for as far as what the average pay is. It seems like that the travel pay is more in those areas because they're so incredibly desperate. But I'd be curious to find out how, like, basically looking at the nursing shortage in California versus the nursing nursing shortage everywhere else. Like there is a nursing shortage everywhere, but is it, is it any better in California with having the nurse to patient ratios being better? Do they stick to that? I mean, do you like, 
If it's do they stick to four, the ratios? Yeah, like if you're supposed oh, yeah. to have only four on a step down, you're only going to get four. You're not going to get that fifth patient, or you're not going to get three patients in the ICU. If you get a fifth patient, like on a telemetry floor, so telemetry is a mandated four to one. If you get a fifth patient, like all hell will break loose. Like the nursing unions will were unionized as well. Like they will come and. Um, like really go after the hospital. Like there's no way you would ever have a five to one ratio. Like there's no, they just never break ratio. I've, I've never seen it happen. Well, I feel like that's the way it needs to be all over. And it's going to be the safest thing for the patient. And that that's what's best for the patient is for nurses to have the opportunity to be able to get around to all their patients, to be able to assess them, give them their meds on time, be able to be watching them closer, especially on a telemetry unit. And so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, it really kind of makes me wonder because all these nurses that were graduating from nursing schools, and and I, I don't know if it's like this in California, but here there are tons of nursing schools and we're just graduating nurses every three months. There's more and more and more. So we have lots of new grads, but they don't seem to want to stay at the bedside after a year or two. They want to move on to something else. And it just seems like there's something that we need. To me, it's the moral distress that I get into or the moral injury for, of feeling like I can't give my patient adequate care. I can't take care of them the way I want to or the way they should be taken care of because I have too many of them. The acuity is too high for how many patients I have. Absolutely. And that, so a few years ago, I, I transitioned from working on a floor to a step down unit and progressive care, you know, intermediate care, whatever your hospital calls it. I, I found that having three patients, it was a one to three ratio. I just liked because I got to know my patients better. And um, I didn't particularly love like the patient population or, you know, anything like that. I just felt like I was providing like good nursing care to these patients. And that for me meant everything to feel like I had the time to know them, to do things myself. Yeah. And, and absolutely the, the nursing ratios played a huge, a huge role in my, I don't know, like, like my decision to stay on that unit for as long as I did. Well, I would, I would just be interested because what we're talking about today is a nurse who has done so many different things. Her, she, her, the credentials, like she's got all the letters after her name, (laughs) you know, Uh she's a fellow, she's a PhD, all of that, all the alphabet soup after her name, but her name is Linda Aiken and she has done pioneering research and created evidence-based showing the importance of nurses caring for fewer patients each, having most nurses with bachelor's or higher qualifications and improving nurse work environments. So that's what she's kind of focused her research on. And I definitely about, you know, the, the nurse to patient ratio. And that's the one thing that she's focused on. And, and recently she's really been pushing for also the improving nurse, nurse work environments. I feel like that, if you, every time you go to work now, okay, even if you have the ratios in place and you only have three on a step down unit or progressive care, and you only have one to two in ICU or wherever you're working, you have the proper uh, amount of patients for the level of acuity. But 
still, you know, the, the environment is stressful because maybe you don't have the resources that you need to take care every time you go to get, get something that go get their medication. It's not there because the pharmacy department is not working efficiently or you don't have enough people there to, you know, environmental services helping with housekeeping. And so you're feeling like you're having to fill in there and, or you don't, I don't know, you haven't having a health unit coordinator to help with discharges or help with admissions and, and that sort of thing. So CNAs, please. Yes, absolutely. How about we respect them and pay them what they're worth? Because that way the patients get excellent, you know, care in addition to you being able to monitor them, assess them, give them their meds watch for acute, any acute changes and notifying the physician about that and then implementing, you know, changes or putting in orders and all of the nursing interventions and in, or interventions that you need to do. But in addition to that, if you could have CNAs who are focusing on their hygiene or doing, you know, turning them and giving them baths and changing their sheets and all of that stuff. And of course you're involved in that too, but having help for all of that stuff, you can actually get around to doing that. Their skin is going to be in better shape there. And CNAs, good, good, high quality, skilled CNAs are invaluable to be in the, you know what I'm talking about? Be in the eyes and ears and, and they learn just like we learn from working at the bedside. They learn too. They learn how to get, walk in and go, okay, this per patient's lung sounds did not sound like, not that they're assessing them and listening to them with stethoscope, but you could, some, some patients, you could hear them from the door that their crackles, you know, you can hear their crackles and you can hear how wet they are. And that's, it's so invaluable and we just don't have enough help. So maybe in addition to the nurse patient ratios, we need more help in general in these hospitals instead of working with skeleton crews. And I think that that's what Dr. Aiken is is focusing on, you know, just elevating the whole, you know, situation, elevating nurses education, elevating the environment, uh, nurse to patient ratios. She has received major awards for, um, in her field, especially with, when it comes to research, she received the Gustav Leinhardt award from the national Academy of medicine for her research, which has impacted practice and policy in the United States and abroad. She has received the top awards in health services research, including the Distinguished Investigator Award from Academy Health and the Baxter Graham Health Services Research Prize from the Association of University Programs and Health Administration. So lots of things that she's done. She's worked very hard to try to help nursing. And in California's development of the state, mandate, nurse, state mandated nurse to patient ratios in hospitals and public reporting of the ratios in other states, were influenced by her research. So it's also been, her research has been used abroad, you know, like I said, in Australia, Wales, Ireland, to help, you know, with, with uh, implementing mandates for that. So she testified at the New York State Health Committee budget hearing about uh, her research that she had done on staffing levels in hospitals. And so this is where I'm talking about where we need to reach out to our lawmakers at a state at state and federal levels, because if you live in this, if I live in the state of Tennessee, we do not have unions in Tennessee. So there is, this, Tennessee is a right to work state. You can be fired for absolutely anything. They can, 
you can leave for, <laughs> for absolutely anything and not have any kind of retribution. So it's, it goes both ways, but there is no collective bargaining in the state of Tennessee. And then many, many states are like that. So you don't have that bargaining power. You don't have some entity that's kind of there to advocate. But that's why I'm saying you have to go to your specific state lawmakers and say, this is what's going on. Here's the research. This is what is going to improve patient outcomes. And that's what her, in, her, her research in this is showing that for found that each patient reduction in nurses workloads was associated with a 13% decrease in patient deaths for elderly patients hospitalized with uh, basically with comic, uh, surgical and medical conditions. And then more than 4,370 deaths would have been avoided is what her research was, was showing if they had had a four to one ratio for step down patients. Basically her, her research is showing that there are, you know, many deaths would have been avoided if all the patients had been, if the, if the staffing ratios had been appropriate for each of the settings. So, you know, what I love about her research here is that she's putting a number to something that nurses have sensed and known intuitively for years. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that this is what, you know, politicians need to hear and what, you know, people who look at numbers, like who work in, you know, the finances of the hospital, this is what they, that's, this is what will speak to them. Yes, this, her research is showing across all hospitals in the state of New York, nurses care for an, on average 6.3 patients each. New York City has the worst staffing with an average of 6.9 patients each. That's their average. So that means that there are nurses caring for more than seven patients. And what in her research, her research showed savings of a minimum of $720 million would have been achieved over two years because of avoided days of hospital care from shorter lengths of stay and fewer readmissions with better nurse staffing. So I exactly what you said, she's putting, taking all this data and, and getting all, pulling out all this information and then presenting not only how it's going to help the patient's and their outcomes, but save the hospital's money as well. And this for this particular state, but every state should be doing this. Everyone should be doing this. And at the, I feel like a federal mandate would be appropriate myself. I think so too. I think so too. And, you know, you were mentioning that New York has like the highest ratio of patients to nurse that in one podcast episode I did, I interviewed a a physician who did his residency in New York. And he said that he used to round on his patients who were on the floors with, you know, with these high ratios throughout the day, because he was so worried about his patients because, you know, nurses were spread so thin. He felt like he needed to be the eyes and the ears for the patients, that the nurse just didn't have time to do that. And that's so sad. And, you know, Maybe, like, it doesn't make, if you want to look at this, you know, financially, you could say it doesn't make sense that a doctor is going to be spending their time rounding throughout the day on patients to, you know, check to see how they're doing. Like, a nurse should do that. And, 
yeah, it just makes a lot more like economic sense to have nurses, you know, adequate nursing be able to provide like that kind of care for patients. I mean, Tina, like what kind of ratios are you working with in, in Tennessee? So I, so I mentioned I, I recently worked on the CBICU for a year and a half, but I recent, I more recently started doing travel nursing. So right now I'm working in a very rural hospital, small little, little hospital with a six bed ICU. And so the ratio there is supposed to be two to one and they stick pretty, pretty strict with that. They're, they're pretty good about that. Now, occasionally what's happening, especially in, you know, with COVID, you'll have patient, we'll have patients in there who aren't really ICU patients. So they're not on any drips. They're not on a ventilator. They're, they're, they're in, they're sick and, and they're needing to be monitored, but more maybe the level of like a step down or PCU. Well, then it's totally reasonable to have three in there. And so if we have, you know, this little six bed ICU where we try to keep one bed open for in case somebody on the floor codes, then they have somewhere to send them. And so typically we're going to have five patients in there and you could have two nurses in there. If, if you've got five patients and a, a couple of them are more or less, you know, step down ish type, type patients, you know what I'm saying? You can work that out within with two nurses. So there staff there are staffing issues all over the state where we cannot find nurses to want you know to want to work at the bedside and so we'll have beds open but not nurses like on the med search floor and so we don't if you don't have enough nurses to cover the covid medical unit then the covid patients have to come into the ICU because of needing the negative pressure room if you know, so yeah, so we end up with a COVID patient who maybe isn't an ICU patient, but they need that to be monitored in a in a negative pressure room, and there isn't the staffing to staff the COVID medical unit and the med surge unit that's not COVID. Is that if that makes sense? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So and yeah. you know, speaking of COVID, I feel like there's more of an awareness of what nurses are going through right now and an understanding of how difficult our job is. And I think, you know, now is the time, like you were saying, to really pressure our politicians to, you know, establish, you know, federal level ratios, you know, if not, then state definitely. But yeah, now's, I feel like now's, now's our moment, <laughs> nurses. <laughs> Become like California, you know, like it's almost like a, I feel like California is almost like a destination for, for nurses sometimes because, because of that, because of that ratio. And we like, it's law, it's like by law here, we don't budge from it. Like you're saying that when a patient on an ICU becomes like PCU step down um, status, then you can, you can have three to one ratios. But like in California, we don't do that. Like we follow that law to a T. And I wonder, I would love to see what the data would show for outcomes for patients in California versus other states that don't have those ratios. Oh, absolutely. It's got to be better. It just has to be. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe if any listeners have that data or, mm -hmm. you know, they work in research, you mm -hmm. know, I'd be really interested to hear what they have to say. I would too. Please reach out because it's this is something that, you know, 
for the good nurse story, I, I want to keep talking about this. So week after week, I'm going to probably keep, try to find more stories about that sort of center around this issue. And so as time goes on, I want to try to do more research and try to learn more myself about this stuff. And so the each week, whenever I talk about this, it causes me to go and look more. And that's how I came up with this story, you know, finding what this nurse is doing, Dr. Aiken. And so if you come up with any, if you have anything regarding nurse to, you know, state nurse to patient ratios, staffing issues, anything like that, some data would love to have it. Just send me an email at, of course, you know, you can email me at Tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. So I guess that kind of our guess we're we made it through the whole episode and yeah. ended up this has been end. a great discussion it's fun isn't it i love this so much i like to get yeah chat about i like stuff. yeah i think it's it's i'm usually you know at on my podcast you know it's educational so it's kind of cool to like sit back and chat about like not only true crime but about like the state of nursing. Well, remind everybody where they can find your podcast, Annie. Yeah, so my podcast is Up My Nursing Game, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. So Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio. For some reason, I get a lot of downloads from iHeartRadio. But wherever you get your podcasts, and then you can also find me on Instagram at Up My Nursing Game. Nice. And you guys know you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com and we are also on social media, mostly on Instagram. Seems to be where nurses are hanging out. Mm-hmm. It's keeping us young, Tina. I know it is. <laughs> it is. We're trying to keep up with the kids here. I know it. That TikTok thing is just. <laughs> um, I know that's. I'm trying to get into it too, but I I don't know. It's it's taking me a while. <laughs> I'm 36, by the way. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. it's a, also finding the time to do it. Like I find like, I feel like it would be fun, but finding the time to do like videos and things like that when I'm already doing this podcast and working full time, it's just kind of yeah. hard to add in the, the whole social media part. It's a little oh. hard to, to do all of that. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of work that goes into um, not only like podcasting, producing, you know, episodes, but like people who are like social media famous put a lot of time and work into what they do. It's not just simply like snapping cute pictures. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they put a lot into it. They work really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess that we can uh, wrap this up. But I definitely before I go, I want to remind you guys that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.